This morning, we're uh, continuing in a series of uh, topics that uh, uh, key doctrines of the Bible that some of us have been assigned to, to preach on. And uh, a few months ago, you may recall, I preached on the inerrancy of Scripture. And when I saw the list of assignments, and I also had, had drawn the assignment of preaching on the doctrine of sin, and I thought maybe Pastor Tom had a message there for me, but and I realized, you know what, I'm as much in need of this this message for myself as anybody, so I did not take uh, offense to that. So, um, and well, today's study is, you know, it's quite a bit different than uh, looking at the inerrancy of Scripture, and but we are going to look at what the Scriptures say about the doctrine of sin. And I was thinking about, you know, the title for today's sermon. We could just simply said the doctrine of sin, which is, you know, what I kind of ended up with, and that would have been, you know, the easiest thing to do, but. Because how can you sort of add a, something on to a message about the doctrine of sin that's kind of like a, a catchy or, you know, memorable kind of phrase that will make you uh, get your attention or make you think about it, but at the same time still give the subject the, the serious attention that it deserves. But I did try to think of a subtitle, and the more I thought about the subject of sin, because, I don't know, the, like the touchiness of the subject, or even to want to say like the despicableness of it, I considered... The doctrine of sin, everything you wanted to know about sin, but were afraid to ask. And then, well, it struck me that not just because of the disagreeableness of sin and the topic altogether, but really the heinousness of sin, it would probably be more fittingly entitled, The Doctrine of Sin, Everything You Wanted to Ask About Sin, But Were Afraid to Know. And this struck me because the more we delve into the subject of sin, the more afraid we may become about, you know, what we learn. And not just about sin, but about ourselves. And the more uncomfortable we may begin to feel because of its closeness to us, or rather our closeness to it. So in other words, when the more we're confronted with the reality of sin, perhaps the more afraid we are to acknowledge that even on our best day, we are simply bent that way and that we battle with it every day, every one of us. So in the end, I think it's a good thing that we talk about the subject of sin and see what the Bible has to say about it, because it's mentioned 400 times in the Bible. And talk about good material, it's like from Genesis to Revelation. So talking about using the resource of the Bible as a reference for, for a discussion of the topic, it's full of it from beginning to end. And But the thing is, is, no matter how much we look at it, we want to become familiar with it in the best sense, in the biblical sense. What does God have to say about sin? Because that's important because we can all have our own ideas, conclusions about it or what we think about it or what the world thinks about it. But what does God say about it? And that's really the, the most important thing. And here's where I'm headed with this is that kind of like the underlying theme, though I'm not going to repeat this theme, but it, it, it should be underneath all this, is that one cannot hold a scriptural view of God and the plan of salvation without first having a scriptural notion of sin. In other words, how can you talk about sin without talking about salvation? Conversely, how can you talk about salvation without talking about sin? So the more we understand about sin and the more we realize our proclivity for it, the more we should tremble before God because of our sinfulness and the greater concern we should have for our fellow man, for our fellow sinners who are in need. The Bible says that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God, and you know, we should cringe to think what it might be like for unbelievers. 
I mean, even as believers falling into the hands of God, we know that we're, we're covered by the blood of Jesus. But, and I don't mean to, you know, I guess be morbid about this, but I couldn't think about the news of those tourists on that submersive that was all across the papers and in the news this week. They were there, they were going down to explore the wreckage of the Titanic. And, you know, I picture them, you know, descending right down in, in ten, to really into inhumane depths of the sea, literally millions of pounds of pressure on that uh, unit they were traveling in. And we know what happened. There was some kind of implosion, explosion, but they experienced a death that none of us can really even imagine. And I tried to think about that in comparison to what it might be like falling into the hands of a living God. That would be just a glimpse. And I don't know about their spiritual condition or where their souls are now, but still. And what was in the news about it? It was the race to recover them, right? And I got to thinking, we have the same kind of urgency in a race to recover an ordinary, normal man, woman, boy, or girl who's on their way to hell. Do we have that same kind of concern, that same kind of urgency? And, you know, that's not all scratched across the news every day, is it? It's not. But it's because of sin that that is happening. So what I'm saying, I guess, to wrap up this thought before I go any further, is that the thought of this should make us all the more grateful for the remedy for sin that we have. It's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the light. He has redeemed us from sin. And the Bible says, for while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So this should reinforce, I think, the point we're going to talk about today about you can talk about any subject, any theme, any issue, for that matter, any doctrine from the scriptures. How can you talk about anything without it pointing to Christ as a matter of urgency? A matter of urgency. And you see the, the quote from today's uh, bulletin, the whole Bible points to Christ and you must make it all bear upon the subject. Christ, the sum and substance of the whole, in him God and the sinner meet. And they can meet nowhere else. So let's pray and then we can continue. Heavenly Father, we just come to you right now. And, you know, it, it's really impossible to give a full accounting of this topic of sin in the time that we have. But we just ask you, Lord, to be with us. Go before us and let your spirit just, you know, work in our lives and convict us of our own sin. And let us know that there is the righteousness in Jesus Christ that we have, that we cling to. And that is our hope. Let's pray today that we'll have a, you know, just a better understanding and gain a better knowledge of, of sin, that we would stay away from it and that we would just live lives that are more pleasing to you. And we commit these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So how we're going to continue is we're going to consider six different aspects of sin. We're going to look at the nature of sin, the origin of sin, the universality of sin, the blameworthiness, responsibility, or the, the culpability of sin, the consequences of sin, and number six, perhaps the most important, the removableness of sin. And so these concepts, as you'll see, they're all so interconnected that there's going to be some carryover or crossover blending here and there in, the, in some of the verses or some of the, the, the themes, actually, we talked about that. But we're first going to consider the nature of sin. <clears throat> Now, in his essay on the biblical conception of sin, this theologian Thomas Whitelaw said that 
The scriptures undertakes no demonstration of the reality of sin. In all of its statements concerning sin, sin is presupposed as a fact, which can neither be controverted or denied, neither challenged nor obscured. And that is the truth. And what's interesting is that we think of the, the polar opposite of that is that the same can be said for God, right? There's no uh, description or definition or explanation of, of how God exists. It just says, in the beginning, God. And that's the marvelous thing. So that's what we really want to keep our, our eye on as we go through the subject is, is the, the idea of how God is supreme. There, there, there's no equal or level playing field when it comes to God and sin. But if you compare all the stories, all the examples, and all the figures, all the illustrations from Scripture, what we see is that it is evident throughout. And in nearly every instance, every person, sin is a free will act. And it's a free will act of an independent, intelligent, moral, responsible being asserting themselves against the will of God. They're asserting themselves against God. And it's that will of God that we see that is every subject is um, uh, learning from his law. That's how we see what God's will, and it's, it's in his law. And first, from what is typically thought of as the Mosaic law from the Old Testament, the principal law, the Ten Commandments. And I realize it's going to be something that we're looking at in our Sunday school lesson next week, but this is where we can begin. <clears throat> so you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And you shall not covet. So these are from, again, the Mosaic Law. And in general terms, the whole Law of Moses, in the first five books of the Bible, that's the Torah in, in the Hebrew or you know, the, the Pentateuch, which means, you know, five books. But, but more specifically, the law of Moses refers to some 600 plus laws that God spelled out for the nation of Israel. 600. Those are all can be found in the books of Moses, namely books, uh, the, the second through the fifth book of the Pentateuch. But let's consider the New Testament. And for instance, Jesus exchanged with the Pharisee in Matthew chapter 22. This could also be considered an example of the law. Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. And we're familiar with this too. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Uh, didn't Jesus add a third commandment in, in the New Testament? He did. In the upper room at the Last Supper. To the disciples, he said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So those are the, the emphasis that, that Jesus made from the New Testament perspective on the law. Psalm 19 says this, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, 
and in keeping him, there is great reward. So that's what's interesting about the law is that here we have these standards, but here it says they are a warning to us. They are a warning. And if we keep them, though, there's great reward. But who can keep the law? I mean, God gave the law to the Israelites to show them actually their sinfulness. There was no way they could keep the law. It was impossible. But they all said, yes, we can do that, Lord. But within a few hours, you know. What's interesting also about the law is that the form of it is written on our hearts. So it's not just, you know, um, in these written laws, there's the, the law written on the hearts of men. And Romans chapter 2 describes that for us. In verses 14 and 15, it says, For when Gentiles who don't have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. So here, every man has the law written on their hearts to know what to do, right or wrong. Do we always do that? Of course not. But it is there. It's in our hearts, in our conscience. The Westminster Confession says that sin is any transgression of the law of God or any lack of conformity unto it. And James 4.17 summarizes sin like this. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. So whether the, from the law written in the scriptures or the law written on the heart, there is a perfect consistency and harmony in God's law. And ultimately, as it says in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, by the law is the knowledge of sin. So can we summarize that, that sin is typically viewed in the scriptures relative to God's perfect, holy, and righteous law? So that's kind of the beginning point. But what about, you know, what about sin and how is it described in the Old Testament? Well, there are three Hebrew words commonly used signifying sin from the Old Testament. There's iniquity, the word sin, and the word transgression. And what's interesting is that these three references are often cited in combination in the scriptures. Even though they, have, they carry different meanings, they are often cited together. Job 13.23 is an example. As he goes to the Lord in prayer, he's, you know, he's, he's defending himself from his associates, and he's crying out to God, and he says, How many are my iniquities and sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. So they're just in two lines. We see the, the example of all three references used. David also uses these very three words when referring to himself in the psalm we read today, acknowledging his great sin against God with Bathsheba and Uriah. He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions <clears throat> and my sin is always before me. So what I want to do is first take a look at iniquity. Uh, the Old Testament word for iniquity, and by the way, I'm not going to try to pronounce these Hebrew and Greek words as we go through them, but just refer to the words themselves. Um, I'm, I'm not a Greek or Hebrew scholar, so the Old Testament word for iniquity represents depravity or perversity, and it's symbolic of a turning aside from a straight path, a turning aside from a straight path. You could probably imagine a reference we're familiar with expressed in Isaiah 53.6. It says, all we like sheep have gone astray and have turned everyone into his own way. 
So again, it pictures that illustration. In other words, we have all turned away from God's straight path of perfection, haven't we? That's iniquity. The second reference is the word for sin itself, which portrays a meaning with which perhaps we may be more familiar. That is the missing a mark. Missing a mark. Scripturally, this is associated with falling short. Or it's a failure to do what one should do. And this concept is referred to 70 times in Leviticus alone. And it's namely associated with all the offerings for sin described under that sacrificial system. <clears throat> which incidentally, all of which you know, foreshadowed Christ's atonement for sin. Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. And it's repeated a little bit differently in Hebrews 9.22. It says, According to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no remission. So relative to sin, remission simply means a release from bondage or imprisonment. As in the case of both these verses, it's the forgiveness or the pardon from sins. It's the release from the bondage of sin. That's what remission is. And this falling short reference, of course, another place we're familiar with it in the New Testament is Romans 3.23, right? We all know this by heart. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All have missed the mark. And the third example of the Old Testament word for sin is a word used for transgression. Transgression represents a falling away from God in the sense of a violation of his commandments, a violation. And what this means is like overstepping a line, right? You've heard the expression, you've crossed a line. Well, that's a transgression to go across. Daniel 9.24, in his foretelling of the Lord's second coming, says this, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. What I love about this is that the Lord will have it covered, won't he? He will cover our transgressions. He will cover our sins. He will cover iniquity. Because he's going to finish the transgression, right? He's going to make an end of sin and to make reconciliation for the iniquity. All these things Christ will complete. And Daniel is foretelling that. So the New Testament comparison for transgression, for example, would be where in 1 John 3, 4, it says that sin is a transgression of the law. Now, in similar phrasing, in Romans 4.15, Paul writes that where there is no law, there is no transgression. So if we said, since we know that transgression is like an overstepping or a crossing over, where there is no line, there is no actual transgression. However, where there is a line and it's crossed, that overstepping is a sin. So as far as the New Testament word for sin, we can look no further than Paul's epistle to the Romans. And it, you know, as we know, Romans, the book of Romans stands alone as really the most important theological book in the whole New Testament. And what it's known for is the clear explanation of that dreadful state of the lost soul, but then God's plan for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, right? That's the emphasis on justification by faith, that acquittal of guilt from sin. And it's all by faith. It's in his Christ's sacrificial death. So it comes to no surprise that Paul 
mentions sin as frequently as he does in Romans. In fact, he uses 10 different words in the book of Romans for sin and uses that word that uh, it's hamartia for missing the mark 43 times, 43 times in the book of Romans. <clears throat> so we could go through the all the reference of that, but I'm not going to do that, but I want to use all the different applications of the book of Romans because it's important to know this. So we have this, this hamartia, which is missing the mark. Continuing through the examples, there's also the word for sin as the literal act of sinning. Then there's a word for transgression, which we've already talked about. It's the crossing over the line. There's a word for sin as a trespass, which means a lapse or a falling or a deviation of truth and uprightness. There's the word for sin as unrighteousness. There's a word for sin for ungodliness, which means a lack of reverence for God. And then there's a word for sin that's simply lawlessness, as a word meaning uncleanness or lack of purity. There's a word for sin, which means disobedience. And there's a word for sin, which is just an error or a wandering away. So this list is exhaustive, isn't it? I mean, 10 references. And to realize that we have committed these offenses many times over, and we still do. But whether it's one offense or a thousand and one, whosoever keepeth the whole law and yet offends in just one point, he is guilty of all. It takes only one sin to separate us from a holy and righteous God. And the law is the standard here. And we, as we've seen from all these observations of the words for sin and the law, you know, we're all guilty. We are all guilty. So as far as the origin of sin, you can probably guess where we're going with this. And it's in the garden scene. In the garden. The third chapter of Genesis, it gives the fullest account of that awful, awful experience of mankind. But as we're going to look actually in that, in that as we're going to read a little bit from there. But as we look at the origin of sin, it does become apparent that, that sin came into the universe before it came to Adam and Eve. According to the scriptures, sin first appeared in the angels. Nothing more is really said about that, so we can't make a lot of conclusions other than the simple fact that the angels sinned. 2 Peter 2.4 says that God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. And similarly in Jude 6, and the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of that great day. Now, some scholars attribute that fall of the proud angel Lucifer, which he described in both Ezekiel and Isaiah as the actual beginning of sin in the universe. And again, we don't really know for certain, but it has preceded, we believe, the fall of the human Adam by really an indeterminate time. We can't really say or know, but we, we'll look at is Genesis chapter 3. And before we do that, just for context, if you want to turn there, you can actually turn back to Genesis. We're going to do a little bit of reading if you want to follow along. But Genesis chapter 2, we need to look at this for context just to that we can um, understand. Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So Adam has been given this clear commandment, what to do and what not to do. 
and it came with the consequence for his disobedience, right? So we could say that any violation here, any offense would, would be a transgression. That's the kind of sin it would be. It would be a transgression. So let's take a look then in Genesis chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 19. So bear with me as I go through this, but it's, it's you know, relative to what we're talking about today, the subject of sin. Now the servant was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the servant deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children and your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam, he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake and in toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Which in the end, there is that promise of death, isn't it? To dust you shall return. So for the sake of time, we can't really discuss you know, every single relevant thing in this passage. But in short, you know, the serpent enticed Eve to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And she in turn enticed Adam to follow suit. God entered into the narrative here and pronounced judgment on the serpent for his wicked deed. And also on Eve and then on Adam for their transgression. The consequences of their actions, and particularly the actions of Adam and Eve, have impacted the course of history forever. And Adam and Eve began the physical death process, but their spiritual separation from God was immediate. It was immediate. So to rehash this origin of sin, the Bible doesn't necessarily give an absolute account of the manner in which sin came into the universe. But in behaving the way that he did... The serpent had obviously been touched by sin, hadn't he? He was deceiving. And the best we can do is to depend on those brief descriptions of sin that we have and probably most relative to that angelic race. And namely, 
Lucifer. But what we can be certain of, though, is how sin found its entrance into the human race. It began with Adam and Eve. And so no matter how you slice it, its existence cannot be denied. And one theologian said, if you don't believe in sin, just go look out on the street, okay? So what's also interesting, and I thought about this, is that when considering God's character, and, and then you consider sin, which is kind of what we've done already to a certain degree, it may be hard to reconcile the fact that you know, God would even allow sin in, into the world. You know, the supreme being that he is, why would he allow that? And I think that consideration alone just lends substance to the argument that, you know, God's first creatures, and especially Adam, were all endowed with the free will to act, just as we have the free will to act. And that would just be a demonstration of love for God more than not, if there is that choice. In other words, Adam and Eve, they were free moral agents, weren't they? They were independent. They were intelligent. They were moral, responsible beings. But what they did is they made the choice to assert themselves against the will of God. They asserted themselves against his will. So while they were created sinless beings, it was possible for them to sin just as much as it was possible for them to not sin. One scholar said that the first Adam was born without virtue and without vice, but capable of both. But nevertheless, soon after sin had entered into the human realm, what we see is the very first use of the word sin, and it's recorded in the scriptures in Genesis 4. And we're familiar with this as well. And, it's the, and the Bible says that you know, Eve bore Cain and Abel, and beginning in chapter 4, if, we're, or if you remain there, you can turn there, chapter 4 of Genesis, verse 2. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? And this is the key verse here. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. So from this passage, our first impression might be that it, it was the appropriateness of his sacrifice, that animal sacrifice that God respected Abel and his offering. And, and, it, was, and it was for the inappropriateness of the sacrifice of Cain that his was not accepted. But Hebrews 11.4, and what you love us about the New Testament, it explains us, to us things that aren't always disclosed in the old. But Hebrews 11.4 says that it was the sacrifice of the heart that was pleasing to God. It says, by faith, by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts. So according to Hebrews, Abel's offering was made in faith. It was in a desire to truly please God, to truly worship him, and Cain's offering really was, I think, made just to justify himself. But really, no matter how you compare the appropriateness of those sacrifices, God is pleased most with the attitude of the heart, isn't he? First Samuel 16, 7, For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And the Lord looked right into Cain's heart, didn't he? 
And just as he did with Adam and Eve in the garden, God asked questions of Cain that he already knew the answer to. But I think his asking was an entreating. It was an entreating of Cain, let me help you. Let me help you, Cain. From what God said, we can clearly see that God wanted Cain to know that dangerous path of sin that he was on. He wanted him for to resist that pull towards the violence and the anger that was within. God warned Cain about the destructive power, the dangerous power of sin. And what is clear that from the scriptures, Cain, Cain had a choice. He had a choice in his actions. If you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. To me, that says that, that Cain had an option there. He could have ruled over it. He could resist sin or he could give into it. The thrust is this, that Cain could be obedient to God or he could be obedient to sin. You know, the Gospel of John alludes to this in one sense. In chapter 2, beginning verse 19, men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. The same vein in James uh, chapter 1, verses 14, 15. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Think of our you know, psalm reading today, what, what David did in sinning with Bathsheba. He was enticed, and he followed his lust, and he sinned. But in this passage in John, these practitioners of evil do not come to the light. It's by choice. In the James passage, each one is tempted when drawn away by their own desires. Again, it's by their choice. What was true of Cain's circumstances and in these passages from John and James is also true of us, isn't it? We have the option to make every choice about every sin, even about every thought we have. First John 3 eight says that he who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. And we as believers cannot take the reality of that lightly at all. We cannot serve two masters. We can go to the darkness or we can go to the light. We can come to the light of Christ. He is there. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I mean, are you in love with the world or are you in love with Christ? I mean, even for believers, we struggle with this. First John 2.15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So as we know, in this moment in time in Cain's life, around the sacrifice, it brought forth the seed of sin, that moment of reckoning for him and sin ruled him. He allowed it to have command in his life. And he committed murder. He murdered his brother. And you know the story. We're not going to have to go into that. But the thing is that sin is so powerful. I mean, how many times can we say that? Should we be surprised at all the evil in the world today? 
sin is at our door. It's at my door every day. Its desire is for us to rule over us, to entice us, to tempt us, to ruin our testimony, to steer our mind away from God. I mean, it happened to Peter, right? Just right in the presence of the Lord. He said, Peter, I've prayed for you, right? Because Satan desires to sift you like wheat. I mean, how, how you know, um, brave or strong, or, you know, not strong, but necessarily, but, but how bold, that's the word I'm looking for. How bold is Satan? How bold, though, is the temptation of sin in our lives? The third point, one of the most pointed verses about the origin of sin speaks plainly of the universality of sin. It's Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all have sinned. And we saw that in Romans, the 3.23 verse. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3 also says, There is none righteous, no, not one. We're all guilty. And to think of it this way, it's evident that from the scriptures that you know, sin is, is not just uh, reserved for only a few. Okay, And it's not exclusive to any particular period in time in history. Ecclesiastes says that everything has a season. Well, sin is present in every season for individuals, but also in every phase of life. For every single man, woman, boy, and girl throughout every age of history, every race, every land, every situation that every individual has ever been placed in, sin is there. God is too. The Bible's history of the world records sin in the garden, in the exodus, in the age of the judges, in the age of the kings, in the age of the prophets, during the era of Christ, in the age of the church, and not to mention all the things we know about, you know, his history of the, you know, the ancient Eastern dynasties, the dark ages, the period of Reformation, the Renaissance, discovery of the new world, industrial revolution, throughout the age of the world wars, into the modern era. Sin is always contemporary. It will always be with us, except for that day when the Lord will put an end to these sayings. But Solomon said, there is no man that sinneth not. And to think that is true even of the best men who have been born again. You've heard our own pastor say from this pulpit that um, the best of men are men at best. David, the man after God's own heart, said of himself that, in sin did my mother conceive me. He was born with a sin nature. How about Paul? The greatest theologian that ever lived. He was the Lord's chief agent during the apostolic age. He says, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. You know, he concludes this passage, as we all know, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. So believers, we need to take heed that 1 John 1, 8 says that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So you can see how exploring this idea of sin 
can make us feel uncomfortable, but it should. And these passages very fittingly lead us to point four, which is the culpability, the blameworthiness of sin. Every individual bears responsibility and the consequence for their own sin. Sadly, there also can be impact on those people in your lives when you sin. But Ezekiel 18, 20, 24 says, the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. But if a wicked man turns from all his sins which he has committed, keeps all my statutes, and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions which he has committed shall be remembered against him. Because of the righteousness which he has done, he shall live. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? But when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and does according to all the abominations that the wicked man does, shall he live? All the righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered because of the unfaithfulness of which he is guilty and the sin which he has committed. Because of them, he shall die. So there is a penalty for sin and it is death. And in this passage, we visit not just that blameworthiness of sin, but the consequences. Simply stated, the wage of sin is death. Imagine that. Death is the payment for sin. It's what we've earned. And as we've seen already in Genesis 2, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Of course, Adam didn't die that immediate physical death, but the process began the instant that he sinned. His spiritual death was immediate. His sin separated him from God in a way that as never before and in a way that we are subject to to this day. So we need to be reconciled to God. We will die a physical death, but we have, again, a choice in terms of our, our spiritual life. So, so far we've taken an overview of these five different aspects of sin. We now come to what is the most important consideration, which is the removableness of sin. The removableness of sin. And here's what we need to consider. As deep and wide as the universality and the culpability of sin are, the extent of the atonement of Jesus Christ is far greater. And that it is infinite in its proportions. It is infinite. In his great work, the doctrines of the Bible, William Evans said this, speaking on Christ's sacrificial death that while the atonement is sufficient for all, it is only efficient for those who believe in Christ. And that is consistent with the Gospels, isn't it? Because in the Gospels in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says that, you know, by the death, burial, and resurrection, according to the Scriptures, if you believe, if you believe in that. He goes on to say, the atonement itself, so far as it lays the basis of the redemptive dealing of God with all men, is unlimited. The application of the atonement is limited to those who actually believe in Christ. So he is the Savior of all men, potentially, and of all believers, effectually. First John 22 says it, or 2 John 22 says it this way, And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 
So you might look at it this way. The only thing that limits the atonement of Jesus Christ is man's unbelief. The man prayed in the gospel to Jesus, Lord, help my unbelief. You know, many verses corresponding to that unlimited grace and mercy of God in providing that full propitiation for sins, which is Jesus Christ. He's the only perfect, acceptable sacrifice for anybody. But now, especially for unbelievers who remain dead in their trespass and sins, separated from God, but they still have access to the throne of God, don't they? They still have access to the throne of grace as long as they live and breathe. As long as they're alive and can hear the gospel. You know, here's some other verses that talk about the extent of the covering for sin. John 1, 29. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. Hebrews 2, 9. But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. First Peter 3.18, Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. Titus 2.11, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's, that's, a, that's almost a horrible thing to think of that Jesus Christ went to the cross to pay for the sins of the whole world. And we know the, the agony that he endured, the sacrifice, but he rose again. He is victorious over death and sin at the cross of Calvary. And so it, in, in that sense, in it's just as infinite the extent of the atonement of Jesus Christ is, so is the extent of his forgiveness for sins. For those who trust in him, it's also infinite. It's in proportions. In his proportions, it is infinite. Psalm 103 says, For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. That's an infinite proportion. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, right now, right now is your time. Today is your day of salvation. You only need to believe. You know, Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. So if you don't believe, you know, the question is, I'm asking is, we're all asking, what is stopping you? God loves you, and no matter what your circumstances are, you have a choice. Maybe you're one of those who have a belief system that doesn't even believe in God, doesn't even recognize God, and therefore doesn't even recognize sin. You make every effort to explain everything away, right? Well, friend, God loves you. You still have a choice. Maybe you're one of those who are so steeped in sin and under the power of it, your conscience is seared. Your heart is hard. But if you're hearing this today, you're sitting under the preaching of God's word and under the conviction of the Holy Spirit who convicts the world of sin. Friend, God loves you. You still have a choice. Maybe you're one of those who just have decided to not think about it. 
just putting it off for a while. Maybe I'll, I'll get to that later in my life. There'll come a time, maybe after I've had my, my kids are grown, I've had my career, then I'll, I'll get around to thinking about the things of God when it's you know, convenient for me. Well, you're deceiving yourself into believing something that you really shouldn't be believing, and you're doing it at your own peril. Friend, God loves you. You have a choice. Maybe you're one of those who thinks that you're such a sinner that God couldn't possibly love you at all. Or you, your sins could never, ever be forgiven because they're so wicked and so bad. But that's exactly what Satan wants you to believe. God is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. He lives to make intercession for you. He saves to the uttermost. That's infinite in its proportions. Friend, God loves you. You still have a choice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the privilege we have to come together and hear your word. And may we just all be challenged by the, even just the, the consideration of sin in our lives. But may we also recognize that we cannot talk about sin without recognizing salvation. Father, we thank you for the new life that we have in Christ. We thank you for what you did for us. And we just praise you. And Lord, help us to live lives of faith and godliness, knowing these things. In Jesus' name, amen.